Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Boom, we're back. What's up, everybody? It's your coach. September 11th, big day for the country, 9-11. Day of mourning, a day we'll never forget even during all these pandemics and what's going on. What a day, 9-11. I think everybody can remember where they were. 9-11, I remember where I was. I was with my mom. Funny enough, I was with my mom. I went to go see a, like a fortune teller kind of lady or something like that. I remember leaving that and getting getting the news, hearing the news in the car. There was no smartphones back then or anything like that. But man, 9-11 for, for everybody, especially those, you know, connected in New York and had people in New York. I'm sure that was that was crazy, man. So today, 9-11, today's episode, totally the opposite of anything of tragedy. It's the creator, CEO of everybody. I called him, this is the Santa Claus for us. Athletes growing up, kids, our sports Santa Claus is Big League Chew. I don't think anybody can look at a Big League Chew and get sad. He described that as fun in a box, fun in a box. Uh, Rob, super cool guy, down to earth. A lot of people don't know this. This podcast, I put it under the relationship you know, when you do podcasts, you, you have to put, you put it in a category. A lot of people put entrepreneurship. A lot of people put business, sports. I put mine in relationships. And the reason I put it in relationship is because I feel the beauty of what we do is the relationships we build. The reason why sports are so important, and it's probably the less, the least talked about stuff when you're in the sport and when you leave the sport it is the most talked about thing is the relationship the relationship component that you build with individuals that you build with coaches that you build with teammates teammates parents and this dude is the perfect example of that having gone played baseball high school then going to Cornell, which is not very popular. A lot of baseball players pick, no, I want a baseball for a school. But don't ever underestimate, especially during these times, the power of an Ivy League education when you tie sports into it. To me, you can't lose when you hit that combo. You'd rather play baseball at an Ivy League school than play at any regular school long-term, what it does for your life, you might not be able to get any return on your sport 
than that. So parents, please keep an eye out for that. Keep, be conscious of if you have a gifted kid that grades come very easily and he's talented on any kind of sports field and Ivy League schools are interested, take a look at that route, visit the schools. We saw it with my man Javi who picked Harvard over UM when UM was that powerhouse in the 90s. Think about that. Think about that. And it worked out for him and his life immensely. When you have a kid that gets that Ivy League option, especially during today's age of education, always, always explore it. Visit the school. Talk to the coach. Uh, like my buddy who runs Penn National says, his coach told him, and he said his coach always used this uh, to recruit him, to recruit guys when they went to to Harvard that he wanted him to go to Harvard. He goes, listen, man, for the rest of the life, for the rest of your life, you're going to be able to tell one of the, these two stories. Either I went to Harvard or I could have gone to Harvard. And he says that nobody cares about the second one. So shout out to all my leaguers. Shout out to everybody that's putting work in the classroom. We don't talk about that enough. It's not sexy enough for classwork. Gets it gets it done when you when you want big things in terms of college and stuff. And if you again can get the opportunity to play out of college at Ivy League school, take advantage. All right. Without further delay, the man who created fun in a box, fun in a box. Of course, I'm talking about Big League Chew creator CEO, Mr. Rob Nelson. Let's. Go. Okay for you? Perfect, dude. Perfect, perfect. Here we go. I'm going to hit the record button here. <laughs> this is great. Three, two, one, boom. We're on, Rob. Rob. How does it feel, man? You're like the sports Santa Claus. How does it feel, dude? Everybody <laughs> loves you. Talk to me about that. Well, I don't know if everybody loves me, but they sure love Big League Chew. Makes me feel great. How did uh, being one of the reasons why I love your story so much is I think you're the athlete's dream, man, in a sense that we think it's about sports, Parents think it's about the sports, but it's the relationship that the sports brings to us and that value. And nobody, I think, proves that more than your story. Did you always view it that way, or is this just something that just landed on your lap? You know, it's, uh, you make a really good point. I, uh, I was very, very lucky. I had you know, a pretty good high school career. I only had one good year in college, uh, my last year at Cornell, and I, I really fell in love with baseball uh, again. And I made second team all Ivy, but I wasn't a pro prospect. Uh, I got three weeks in spring training with the Cardinals, uh, but nothing really worked out until I got an offer to go teach school and pitch in Cape Town, South Africa. And basically, my, my dad used to laugh. He's a New York City police officer. He would tell uh, his friends around town in a church that, uh, that Rob was big game hunting in Africa. 
and uh, they said, really? We didn't know he hunted. He said, no, he's pitching in big games in, in South Africa. So oh, my whole family had this sense that, that fun matters, and nothing brings out fun in people more than baseball. And uh, let's face it, nobody luckier than me. I mean, fast forward to when I was pitching for the Portland Mavericks. I won one game in three seasons there, but it was sitting in that bullpen that, uh, as my brother Harry said, I got lightning in a pouch. I just had one great idea and allowed me to keep having fun and enjoying the game on a level that was competitive for me, uh, playing in England, playing in South Africa, playing in Australia. I got about 15 years of baseball after college, and uh, no lefty luckier than I. I love that you said that being... You're lefty, I'm lefty, lefties see the world differently, we have certain advantages. Growing up, your father, you said, was a police officer. Rob, how was his, how did he manage your sports? How did he attribute to your success? Well, I have two older brothers. My brother Harry was a pitcher, my brother Ed was a lacrosse player. Uh, but again, I think the commonality was the, the fun factor. And my dad was always playful. When we, we moved into Massapequa, New York, on Long Island uh, from Queens, first thing my dad did was cut a circle in the backyard, and all the neighbors thought we were putting in one of those four-foot swimming pools, the above-ground jobs. But he was building a pitcher's mound. And he built a pitcher's mound and a backstop. And, uh, you know, a little bit of teaching, but a lot of trial and error. My dad and I would watch Whitey Ford pitching for the Yankees, and he would point things out to me about how Whitey held runners on, how he picked guys off, how he was so composed in key moments. And after a game was over, you couldn't tell if Whitey had won or lost. He was always a gentleman out there. So I guess the commonality between my mom and my dad and my brothers and me is that respect the game and have some fun out there, and you never know what's going to happen. That's, that's great advice. Rob, what was your arsenal as a pitcher? What'd you throw? I threw two pitches at two speeds. I had a straight ball that moved a little bit, a little bit of a sink to it, and, and I threw a curveball. And, and the reason I had luck in college and in uh, overseas was I could throw breaking pitches behind in the count. And again, I can't emphasize enough. I I, uh, I didn't have big league stuff. I had two great seasons pitching in Cape Town, and when my dad had sent me a pile of sports clippings about. Uh, possibility of trying out for the Portland Mavericks independent single-A team. I was excited about it because I thought I was a late bloomer. You know, I had one good year my senior year in college and then two great seasons after that. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'm getting better. Maybe I'm Warren Spahn. You know, I'm not going to reach my prime until I'm, you know, in my mid to late 20s. And I went out to Portland, and I still live here, but I, I came out here thinking that that I was going to win a dozen games in a short season, and the Yankees were going to buy my contract. As it turns out, I came out here and I got hit like a pinata. So <laughs> it, it didn't work out on the mound, but it certainly uh, worked out in the, in the game of life. I can't agree with you more. Going to Cornell, not very common for baseball players to go to these Ivy League schools, which I love when we do that. How was that experience for you being a student athlete? You know, it, I listened a lot to a lot of smart people there. I will say this, academically, academically at Cornell, it, it's, it's like finally getting a chance to play minor league baseball, and you find out everybody on the roster batted fourth and pitched and probably played shortstop if they were right-handed, 
and and that's what the Ivy League was like. Everybody could compete. In terms of athletics, I love the balance of the uh, the academic demands, and and yet we were playing Division One baseball. We lost our final league game to Harvard, one nothing. Otherwise, we would have gotten into the NCAA tournament. But I love the competition, and that was the thing that really uh, worked for me was that I was playing against guys where. I could pitch around the really good hitters and, and maybe help the team win. The handful of guys who made it to play professional ball and a handful of fellas who, who played had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, those guys always hit me well. So uh, I try to be a crafty southpaw. I pitched around guys, and uh, we had great defense. I'm going back to Princeton next April. is the 50th anniversary of when I shut them out. And uh, I ran into Joe Mio, the the fellow who caught for me that game a few years ago, and he he had come in an alumni game about five years ago, and he said, you know, Rob, I think you're throwing harder now than you did in 1971. So it's wow. been pretty fun. Yeah. Rob, what number were you? Number 16. I wore Why 16. 16? Uh, Whitey Ford. Whitey Ford, I, I, really, huh? I thought that was going to be the next, you know, Long Island guy to – to be the chairman of the board. I just love the way he played the game. My, my favorite pitcher to watch was Sandy Koufax. It was absolute poetry in motion, the perfect stride, everything about Koufax. You, you don't see any photos or any footage of Koufax where he looks that he's not in total control. And I knew I could never achieve that. I could never throw over the top the way he did. But Whitey was a scrappy lefty who had a little bit of heat and knew when to crank things up. And uh, let's face it, Casey Stengel was his manager. Uh, they had a great team, Maris, Mantle, Yogi Berra, Elston Howard, a lot of great players. And he was a good team guy. So, yeah, number 16 worked for me. Up until this year, the, the original pouch of Big League Chew is number 16. And wow. I changed it this year to, uh, to number 56 in honor of my late great teammate and business partner, Jim Bouton, who, who passed away. And uh, I wanted to pay tribute to Jim. So the original guy is number 56 in honor of the Bulldog. I like that, dude. I like that. What type of glove did you use when you played? A Whitey Ford glove. Finest in the field, Rawlings, heart of the hide. You know, it's funny. I didn't, didn't get to do my baseball camp this year uh, on Long Island, uh, which we've done every year since 1986. So for half of my life, I was a baseball coach for a week or two or three uh, in the Hamptons, and uh, and absolutely loved it. But we didn't get to do it this year, so I went out and uh, got myself uh, Clayton K. Kershaw's glove for next season. I was breaking it in this morning. It really cracked me up that, you know, I'm 71 years old, I'm breaking in my glove uh, for next year's baseball camp. But, you know, the game matters to me. And, and the fun thing for me playing overseas, one particular teammate, Steve Simmons, second baseman, going to the pub after a game. And he said, Nelly, the thing I really enjoy about playing with you is that you respect the game and win or lose, you're the same guy, but you always seem to find a team where you can compete and you work a little bit harder and do a little bit better than most of the guys out there. And to me, it was it was the biggest compliment that I respect the game and, and respected the craft of being a pitcher. Even though I couldn't get the best guys out, I found a place to play. Rob, I love that way of thinking. With today's tournaments and how it works and the pressure on kids, it's completely different 
because you're measured on this metrics that's very hard unless you're like a stud right away they're not allowing kids to blossom they're not allowing kids to have fun people parents are competing against kids the wrong way it's the wrong message i love your story because it's a story of longevity and it's a story of it feels like you allowed yourself to be you and the fact that you like the idea that you've always thought of being a late bloomer in today's culture it's almost like the reverse it's almost like they would have taken you out of the sport already because if you're not this top person at a certain time it really doesn't make sense how comfortable were you with that late bloomer mentality yeah i just i was i felt very fortunate you know my teammates call me the lucky lefty and uh and i was i i, I was just Lucky to always find a manager and teammates who, who got me. Uh, so in turn, when I went over overseas, I always worked at the kids program and I always hit infield and hit fungos to the outfield because to me, it was like being a professional ball player. Let's face it, I got lucky with the bubble gum. It helped me pay off my student loans. Uh, I was able to do some nice things for, for my mom and dad and, uh, and for my brothers. Uh, my dad had a great saying that, you know, it's... Uh, It's probably great to be rich and famous, but you're probably better off being comfortable and anonymous. And except for Halloween on our street where everybody knows it's the bubblegum house and everybody comes uh, expecting to get a pouch full of big league chew, th that's pretty much the way it's been, to be comfortable and anonymous and just respect the good fortune that has, has happened for me. And when, when you get into the competitive side of it, that, that – When parents and coaches think the only goal is to go to the next level. And it always drives me crazy to see brochures for a seven-year-old baseball program that, that's going to take your kid to the next level. I don't buy it. I, I just think let kids play until they're maybe 15 or 16, and then you can get a little more serious. But I will, I'll give you one example. Massapequa International Little League, 1964. We had four teams in the senior league division. So there were 60 guys in the league. Uh, you had a 30% chance of making the all-star team. So we had 18 guys. Four teams you played on Tuesday and watched the other guys on Thursday, or you played the 10 o'clock Saturday game or the 1 o'clock Saturday game. That's the team that won the Senior Little League World Series. We beat Branham, Texas. We beat Monterey, Mexico. We beat a team from Iowa. And... Uh, Our coach was Mr. Joe Quinn, a detective, NYPD. We never heard of private lessons where you got paid. And to get to Carmen Road School where we played, there was only one field in the whole uh, operation. You either took your bike or you walked there. 13, 14, 15-year-old guys, just a ragtag collection of guys. And we absolutely had a ball. We had the 50th reunion, and now we're you know, coming up on the, the almost the 60th reunion. We can't believe it how much fun that we had uh, in, in a no-frills way. A lot of us got to play ball. A handful of us got to pitch uh, and, and play different positions at D1 programs. A lot of guys played D3. But we, we weren't thinking in terms of, boy, if I go three for four today, there are a lot of scouts in the stands. I'm, I'm going to get drafted. Uh, it, that just wasn't our Even in my baseball camp, you know, five and you're out. Foul balls don't count. Uh, we've set up a game where it's seven aside, where I pitch to both teams. I have a high school kid who's catching for me. Every coach in my camp, I mean, this says a lot about the way I look at baseball. Every coach in my camp was a kid in my camp 
from 1986 oh, wow. till now. They're either, they're either high school kids or college kids. And the beauty of that is they get the mentality. One parent said this camp is like Robin Williams meets Cal Ripken. It's a constant banter of jokes, but seriousness. You keep the handle down, the bump will go down. We probably teach a dozen fundamental things and then just let the kids go play. And I just don't see that a lot. You know, a six-day baseball camp for $120 uh, in, in what we call the blue-collar Hamptons, Hampton Bays, New York, uh, you know, it's no surprise I'm always sold out. But, you know, I see the numbers and we get a different type of kid coming now because a lot of kids are 11 years old. They're playing travel ball. They don't have, really have time to, to, to attend what a lot of people would say is a rec program. But I think we're teaching more than just baseball. We're teaching life lessons. We're teaching how to take things in stride. They know that Coach Rob is going to call a hot shot down the third baseline fair, even if it's six inches foul because the kid hit it so well. And the first time that happens in a camp and a kid says, Coach Rob, that ball is foul. I say, you know what this camp is teaching you? Sometimes umpires miss the call. And besides, Jimmy crushed that ball. Uh, I really can't, I really can't, I don't have the heart to call a foul ball. And in day one of each week of camp, when they're new kids, they think this guy's really whacked. And then they get it. They understand that five strikes and you're out uh, really helps kids. And when a kid misses five pitches somehow, and it happens, he's really not out because they say, all right, Freddie, get up there left-handed. Let's see if we can do it that way. So it's constant positive reinforcement that, that uh, this game should be fun. And later on, it's going to be serious. There are going to be men on base. You're going to have to move runners over. You're going to have to do things. But we do emphasize, hit the cutoff man, be polite, respect your teammates, and have some fun out there. Rob, everything you're saying, man, is music to my ear. <laughs> everything. Oh, sorry, e I you. No, 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 you're good, you're good. Everything you're saying is music to my ears. I'm from Cuba. I'm the biggest failure in the history of Miami baseball by far. I'm a victim of sports of sports abuse through my dad. What he did to me through the sport was atrocious. But it had to happen because now in this stage of social media, I became like the kid whisperer. And I have hundreds of thousands of followers. And all I preach okay. to parents is nobody on the internet right now is seeking positive message more than me i've interviewed all the greats i'm the first influencer to sign with rawlings so like you i okay. got my own i got my own glove with the logo awesome. and, and everything i've interviewed cody bellinger lindor to george lopez on the show to now you and everything is effort attitude and fun and i completely understand everything you're saying because we've glamorized plastic trophies that don't mean anything versus building yeah. relationships, dealing how to deal with failure, learning how to handle adversity. And I love everything you said there about your camp. Truly do. You know, what's interesting about my travels is when I finally got to meet Bing Russell, the fellow who created the Portland Maverick baseball team. He's the father of Kurt Russell. He always thought he was going to be a big-time movie star, and it didn't work out for him. He became the deputy sheriff on Bonanza you know, for the whole length of the series. And he's in a lot of movies, and when you see the documentary that they did on the Portland Mavericks called The Battered Bastards of Baseball, uh, it's on Netflix, it's free, it's still out there. You get a real taste of who Bing Russell was. He's a single-A 
a single-A uh, owner, and he had a 30-man roster because he wanted five guys to just get a chance to go on the road and then go to a tavern after a game and say, yeah, I'm with the ball club. He just wanted some guys to have the experience of being professional players. It's almost like we were like a band, and, and he was the band leader, and we all knew that we had a part to play. And when I went out there, I had two appearances in the tryouts. The first one, I did really well, struck out five guys in three innings. And then the second time, I just didn't have it and got really hammered. And I went to Bing the next morning, and I said, I know I pitched myself off this team, but I'm not going back to New York. I'm going to stay here. If there's any chance I could throw batting practice, 10 bucks a day, and, and, and uh, sell tickets on the phone, anything you need me to do, I'll do that. And, and he took me up on it. And then about a week or so later, I, I remembered a paper I'd written when I was in college on how to run a baseball day camp using public land. So I wrote a proposal for the Little Maverick Baseball School, and that's what changed my life. Bing said okay. He called the Park Bureau. He let me use the brand. All the coaches in my camp were guys who played for Bing. So it might have been a pitcher who wasn't going to throw the next night, but these are legitimate pro ball players. So when Eddie Cervantes was showing guys how to turn double plays at second base, they'd go to the game and sit in the sands with me at night because I wasn't on the roster yet. And we'd sit behind the dugout and we'd watch Silky Cervantes do his magic in the middle infield. It was all based on fun. And, and I don't know why Bing, what he saw – but I'm so grateful. I, I, I talk not so much with Kurt, but with his sisters and say, you know, how grateful I was that, that your dad saw that I could help the team, but it wasn't going to be 60 feet, six inches from home plate. It was going to be from the dugout. I finally became the pitching coach. The last year I ran the tryouts with 300 guys trying out, and I devised a formula that Bing absolutely loved it, but he gave me the opportunity to think outside the box. So fast forward to my third season there. I still haven't won a game sitting in the bullpen with Jim Bounton when we're looking at guys chewing red man and spitting on each other and on the floor and making a mess. When Jim Bounton asked me, uh, did you ever chew that stuff? I said for 30 seconds. I can tell you the day, the place, the guy who said, hey, Rob, i to try this. And, uh, and I said, it just didn't make sense to me. It, it was less than a minute, and I was supposed to throw BP at that practice, and I couldn't. I was so dizzy. And Jim said the same thing. He said, yeah, I tried it once myself, and I thought it was just silly and, and certainly not healthy. It was maybe an inning later when I said, suppose we shredded bubblegum and put it in a pouch. We could look cool like the other guys, but we wouldn't make ourselves ill. And Jim's eyes got as big as baseballs. He said, Rob, I love that idea. I think that would be so cool. Maybe a batter or two later, he said, what would you call it? And off the top of my head, I said, I don't know, Big League Chew? I mean, just off the top of my head. And you know, my dad says it, it's a bit like the story he used to love to hear about Picasso in a restaurant when a woman came over and asked him to, to just draw something on a napkin he did and said that'll be 20,000 francs or whatever the currency was. And, and the, the person at the restaurant, the woman said, but that took you two minutes. And, and he said, no, it's taken me 30 years. And, and that's kind of what my baseball experience has been like. All the stuff that I've picked up along the way, I just kind of gleaned the good things from the Bing Russells of the world and the Brian Lombards in South Africa and the Malcolm Needs guys in, in London. 
I can give you a whole roster of what I call my Hall of Fame buddies. They're all first ballot unanimous. And it's funny, when you pack your bags and you hit the road and you find people who get it, you know, who understand not only what baseball is about, but what your everyday life is all about, how to tip a bartender, how to hold the door open for somebody, how to be just a decent guy. Uh, it ain't rocket science, and we need more of that. You know, you talk about the problems that amateur baseball has. How about just the problems in everyday community? Just civility and just understanding what we got here is a bonus. The fact that we're here at all, and we all should take advantage of that if we can. And uh, I'll get off my soapbox now. Sorry. No, no, no. It's perfect. It's perfect. Rob, why don't you? I literally, right before you, I had a call. I get about a, a 500 to 1,000 messages a week with really? people reaching out, people reaching out for help about businesses, about how to deal with their parents, about how to deal with uh, kids. And we don't teach how to listen, which you mentioned. We don't teach how to be empathetic. We don't teach self-awareness enough. We don't teach gratitude. Why don't we talk about that more? That's my life mission. My life mission is anybody who wants help, I take their call as long as I can document it that I'm doing it. So I use it for my social media so I can spread the message. Sure. I don't sure. charge anybody. I do it for free to help. Why don't you think we do that more? You know, it, it's, it's a very good question, and, and I really don't know the answer. I go way back to what I call Jackie Robinson 101 when he says that life is, is, is unimportant except in the impact you have on other people. And, and what you can do for other lives all around you. And there are a lot of guys out there who are doing that. I, I think in terms of my brothers uh, and for me, it started with our mom and dad. You know, dad was a cop, mom was a mom. And we just kind of had this thing that we lived in this neighborhood where every house was the same. And Massapequa was interesting because there was a more affluent side. And there was a more, I, to lack of a better term, more humble side. And uh, whenever we had a high school basketball uh, uh, party, there were the two high schools. They'd have an alumni game, and then there'd be a post-game celebration. Everybody would be at the Nelson house, not because it was the mansion on the hill. My dad wasn't Jake Gatsby. You know, it was where the fun was. It was where you could go in and say, hi, Mr. Nelson, hi, Mrs. Nelson, and you knew you would be welcome. It, it's, it's not rocket science. I, I kind of make it sound like, you know, I grew up in this, Ozzy and Harriet, it's a wonderful life kind of setting. Uh, and, and I did. I just finished reading the book on the Wright brothers, uh, David McCullough's book. And somebody had said to Wilbur Wright, it's amazing what you guys have accomplished, seeing, considering how disadvantaged you were. And, and Wilbur Wright said, what are you talking about? We had a lot of books in our house and a lot of laughter and a lot of love. And we had a commonality within our family. His sister, and he had three brothers, Orville and Wilbur, of course, are the most famous, but Catherine was, played a big part in how they ended up getting up in the air. But he said there was always conversation, there was always curiosity, and there was always respect. And when I read that thing, I said, man, this is like a page out of my mom and dad's book. Wow. But the fact that he said you made it despite your disadvantages, both the Wright brothers said we weren't disadvantaged. You know, Dayton, Ohio, you know, w wasn't, you know, a, uh, a destination place for most people. But it's funny, in the first paragraph of the first chapter of the book, 
you know, Wilbur Wright says, if I had to give advice to anybody, I would pick a good mom and dad and grow up in Ohio. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a great book. And it was. <laughs> Long, I had to switch over to the Audible edition because I was getting worn out. But it's, a, it's exactly what you're talking about. Take pride in your craft. I mean, those two guys, neither of them went to college, and they just got curious about flight and birds and things. Wilbur Wright wrote this famous uh, letter to the Smithsonian, can you send me everything you know about flight? And that's what started everything. I think that letter is in the Smithsonian today. They say it's the one that changed history. Uh, certainly uh, in the top ten, I can't think of any other. But that whole idea of respect and, and of uh, being empathetic. And their dad, who was a, a, a traveling reverend, he just was always so upbeat, even when, even when their experiments failed. You know, it's, it's you know Thomas Edison said it time and again. When you do a thousand things wrong, uh, you learn what not to do, and uh, there's a lot to be said for that. I love that. I love that you said that. I was, I had the, the very, very, very awesome, fortunate benefit to. I was in Portland probably two years ago on my way. To, I've never been there before. I live in Miami. I'm Cuban from Miami. Uh, we, I went. Oregon State reached out to me when they won the national title, and I spoke to the team. So I flew into Portland, and then I went to Corvallis, Oregon. No what, a, what a beautiful state. Everything that's going on there now, which from an outsider, you hear that things are upside down over there. How do you feel now about Portland? How does it feel as a member of society? How are things looking there? To me, Portland, I mean, I've been here 45 years, and Portland is home. And jokingly, I say Oregon is, is the Netherlands of America. You know, we've got just a different vibe out here. There, there is a lot of compassion. There is a lot of passion for, for doing things the right way. I do think the, the, the protests were by and large peaceful, and I think the the footage that you see makes it look like we were in the middle of a war zone, and that just wasn't the case. And I don't think we needed federal interference. I think we've got good government here. I think the people here have done a good job. Were there excesses uh, among the protesters? Certainly, that's going to happen everywhere. But I do think we had it under control, and I'm, I'm not leaving Oregon. I've got two 16-year-olds and a 20-year-old, and uh, this is home to us. And I, I still find, even though it's three times the size it was when I came here in 1975, there's just something about Portland, Oregon that, that, that feels like home. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful every time I drive by Grand High School, where uh, my daughter Jane is still attending, it's where I started the first Little Maverick baseball school. And here is a community, let me use their land. The parents thought it was okay to, for them to come to a baseball camp with a guy with a, a bad Long Island accent. And I've kind of lost, no, probably 90% of it. But the people were so helpful here to me, and that's still the way in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I just I can't say enough about the state and, and the town. I play tennis with a bunch of guys. Every summer we go to Eastern Oregon because there are four grass courts that we can go play at. And it's like a minor league baseball road trip. And these are guys in their 40s up to their 70s. And 
there's just a friendship about it. There's a vibe. It's competitive, but when it's done, we throw some stuff on the grill and have a couple of pints. And to me, that's Oregon. That is a very, very friendly place. I love that. Sounds good just even listening to that. Rob, you mentioned your kids. How are you as a dad similar to your dad as a dad to you? You know, I, my dad never knew his father. Um, my, my grandfather passed away when my dad was three months old. And my brothers and I are always amazed at how good a father our dad was. Uh, when he passed away, the, the, one of the neighborhood kids, Billy Bradley, brought along my dad's nightstick because he used to walk the beat in Manhattan when he was first uh, a police officer. And, and Billy Brad said, Mr. Nelson gave me this when he retired. And it didn't occur to me until this happened that I would knew I'd have to speak. If you look at this nightstick, there's not a mark on it. It's, it's just he never needed a club. You know, he, he just, he was a gracious man and, and he was a good listener. When his three sons finally got out of high school, then he ran for the school board and he was elected three times. So for nine years, he wow. got paid a dollar a year to be on the Massapequa school board because he loved the teachers. He loved the coaches. He was a conduit between the administration and the teaching and coaching community. He was a very even keeled guy. And the superintendent of schools, oddly enough, Dr. Harold Bell, came in from uh, Eugene Springfield, Oregon. It was amazing that he is the first person I'd ever known who was from Oregon. And uh, he was a PhD, a really bright guy, and he took my dad aside. They both had the same first name. They were two Harolds. And, and he said, Harold, I have a feeling that you're going to be a, a real uh, asset to me. It's almost like the last line in, in Casablanca, the beautiful friendship kind of thing. He said, I got a lot of guys on this school board who have a lot of letters after their names, and they're very well read. But he said, nobody reads the room like you do. And he said, I, I really hope that we can do this for a long time. It turned out it was a nine-year friendship that they had, and then beyond when, when they both retired. But... Yeah, that, that kind of thing of emphasizing the positive. You know, you know, it was more like Jeff Fun today. You know, it's like, oh, did you win? Did you lose? Certainly. But how'd you do it? It matters so much to me that that component was there. So I do that with my kids. My son Charlie plays lacrosse. Uh, Janie and Paige both play tennis. And it was mostly, I love your back end. I, you know, it's the thing I do at my camp. You find the one or two things that a kid do did really well during the day. A one-bounce throw, hit the cutoff end kind of thing. You always talk about that stuff. And that's what my parents were like. My mom was the same way. I just, I always felt that they had my back. And my brothers would agree with me. And the fact that I, you know, I went from National Community College up to Cornell, and my parents were nervous that I was going to be breathing rarefied air in an Ivy League school. My brother Harry came up to visit and was at the fraternity house and then met my teammates with the ball club. He said, these guys have nothing on us, do they? I said, no, they're good guys. These are really nice people here. They're just smarter than we are. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big deal for me to, to learn that uh, the sense of community exists everywhere, whether in, you're in the Ivies or Nassau Community College, we really are in the same, we're on the same planet. And that's the thing my dad really emphasized. It's, uh, I'm a very lucky guy. I love that. I love that. Let me show you something here. Dude, my, coincidentally, my shipment got in today of the one you sent me. 
of the Big League Chew. It came in today. I just in the lost mail. you there. Can, can you still can you hear me? You got some Big League Chew there? It came in today. <laughs> so this, I wanted to thank you. My shipment came in today. Oh, no kidding. That's great, man. <laughs> so my, I told you, my yeah, favorite. Great, it's Ford Gum up in Buffalo, New York. Okay, man, I can't believe that arrived. That's so cool. Today. So I want to thank you so much for that. I love the original chew, like I told you. What's your favorite flavor? You know, when I do a competition, I, I chew ground ball grape. I find it to be a little more leathery, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm more competitive with the grape. But deep down, I remember that first pouch when I opened it, and it was original Big League Chew. It was funny. It was Darren Ravel many years ago when he was with ESPN Business. He asked me, when you open that first pouch of Big League Chew, what did it smell like to you? And, and I said, it smelled like fun. And he said, oh, man, that's the perfect, perfect answer. He said, did you know I was going to ask you that? I said, no, it's the first thing that came to my mind. It's pretty great. I love that. I love that. Two more questions. So I don't want to keep you so long. Two more questions. I love your collaboration with New Balance. I think that was uh, such a good move. Matt is just a good guy. Talk to me about that. How did that relationship start? How did you feel doing that collaboration? Well, Matt contacted me, and as luck would have it, my uh, my daughter was a freshman. Paige was uh, a freshman at uh, BU, and so I was planning to go back to Boston. And he said, "We've had this idea. Did you would you be interested?" I said, "Well, I'm gonna, in three weeks. I'll be there." He said, "We'll meet together with a couple of guys, uh, and 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 kind of mull it over." And I walked into a room. There were a dozen people there. Apparently, Matt put the word out that. The Big League Chew guy is coming in, and it was, <laughs> I felt like Mr. Wonka walking in the room saying, well, <laughs> hard to believe, you know? And one thing led to another. Their creative team, the packaging is just phenomenal. They, they're just the nicest people. And I had approached Nike a number of years ago because I knew some people uh, at a, in the baseball division there, and they, they just never really thought there was a synergy, and I said, you know, you guys are Oregon-based, and I, you know, I invented Big League Chew in Oregon, and and uh, but it just never clicked. And then to come out of the blue to get this phone call from Matt, it was just phenomenal. I could not be more well-pleased. You know, it's a funny thing, too. We're the, the Hall of Fame bubblegum, and it was the same kind of collaboration that John Maroon, who does my PR stuff, when I told him I'm interested in talking with the Hall of Fame, he said, oh, I know those people. They're great. You guys will get along. I drove up to Cooperstown, and Jeff Idelson was the president at the time. He's the same kind of guy as Matt. It's a, You know, we're so lucky that we I'm hanging with people who just love life and love the game of baseball and want nothing but the best for it. You know, we, we, have, no, we have no ulterior motive other than to see the game grow. And, of course, for me, you know, it's paying a few bills, but... For new, for, for new Balance to see what possibilities were there. I mean, you look at the bottom of the shoe, it looks like you've stepped in great big league shoe. I mean, who thinks of that stuff? It was just so phenomenal. I, I, you can tell I'm pretty enthused about it. And shower shoes, you know, flip-flops, uh, slides. I mean, I, I just it never would occur to me. And that's another big thing I picked up from my mom and dad. There are a lot of people out there who know a lot more than we do. So, again, going back to what we talked about in the first two minutes, be a good listener. And I listened to New Balance, and I liked what they had to say. Thank you for bringing that up.
I got the sandals here somewhere in the house, but look at this. <laughs> Phenomenal. Right? Look at that. It says fun. You know, and it's the thing about, there's the thing about Big League Chew, kids like it, grown-ups like it, and New Balance understood that. They understood that, okay, it's a bubble gum, but Big League Chew, more than anything, means fun at the ball yard or anywhere, for that matter. I mean, they nailed it. I mean, that bases loaded home run. That's yeah, a touch. Such nostalgia. <laughs> such, yeah, you have such nostalgia, man. Such, it's such, uh, like you said, fun. It's, it takes everybody back. Well, I don't care who you are. It takes you back. If you're yeah. five, it takes you back to four. If you're 50, <laughs> it takes you. You know what I'm saying? It's just like back to the future, man. It, yeah. is, it, it is awesome. Rob, what's your favorite type of music? You know, I'm kind of a blues guy. I listen to a little bit of jazz, Miles Davis, uh, kind of an old rock and roller. You know, I've got the Beatles channel on all the time. Uh, but deep down, if I had to pick one thing, I'm, I'm kind of a blues guy. Favorite blues guy? Uh, I'm going to go B.B. King and J.J. Kale. B.B. King, J.J. Kale. All right, all right. Ron. I couldn't uh, thank you so much, Rob, for the time you've given me, for <laughs> the awesome uh, shipment. I, I travel the country speaking is what I do for a living. As, a, as an influencer and helping people, what I'm going to do is I'm going to volunteer myself for free. Next year, when you do your camp, I'm going to come in and I'm going to help you. And we're going to speak to the parents. We'll speak to the kids. We'll speak to everybody together. That's awesome. And I'm gonna we're gonna document it, and so you can have it for your social and for your story oh, and all awesome. that. Because I think we need cool. we need to celebrate, and we have to get more people to understand what life is about. I'm gonna tell you a funny story. You told me good stories. I'm gonna tell you a good story. So when Oregon State reaches out to me two years ago, I don't know who anybody is on the team. I just one of the coaches had been following me on social media. He liked nice. my message. He liked what I had to say. So he asked me, he goes, listen, would you, would you want to come speak to the team? And I said, absolutely. I flew myself out there myself. My okay. wife just had our first, our, our first, our only kid right now, our daughter. And I told her, I got to go out there. I got I to gotta speak to this team. So I went from Miami. I left on Monday night. I went from, flew from Miami to San Francisco. Then had a one-hour-and-a-half layover, went from San Francisco to Portland. I drove to Corvallis. I document everything. So I have a guy following me with a camera the whole time as I'm speaking. And I'm speaking to the team, Rob, and I don't know who any of the players are. And I see these pair of blue eyes just staring at me the whole conversation, the whole time through, listening and gasping everything I'm saying from how I dealt with failure, my mindset, my positivity. And I always, when I'm done, I ask if anybody has any questions. He's the first guy to raise his hands. Coach, your mindset. How do you keep that mindset? How do you deal with failure? How do you stay so positive? I answered the question. We're done. We take a group picture, Rob. He's right next to me. We finish. He sends me a message on Instagram thanking me for be being there and for being so open and so honest. After I was done, the manager calls me and goes, Man, you crushed it. You did such an amazing job. He goes, by the way, you know that kid was that kept asking you all these questions and stuff? I go, no, I have no idea. He sent me a message thanking me, but I don't know who he is. He goes, that's Adley Rushman. 
the projected number one overall pick in the 2019 wow. draft. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that that's crazy? So cool. oh, so, that's so great. The Orioles got a winner with Adley, man. He's 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 the real deal. He's the real deal. That's cool. That's he's the really real deal. Cool. Rob, before I go, any help? Any help I can be? Any questions for me? Anything? Not at this time, but you know I'm going to keep in touch. <laughs> you got it. Listen, anything you need. I don't know who handles your social media, but if I could ever be of any help of help promote anything, any events or anything, just have your people reach out to me for free. Any help I can be, you let me know. Oh, Coach, I really appreciate that. That's just awesome. Thanks so much. Well, my guys are Maroon PR. I met them through Callum Bill Ripken, and they're awesome. They're going to love hanging with you and uh, brainstorming. I can't thank you enough, Coach. This is thank uh, you so, much. so great. That's Thank you awesome. for your time, okay? All right, we'll be in touch. Thank you again. Safe travels. Be safe. Okay, bye. bye. Boom, there we are. Can't thank Rob enough. I get what he does with, uh, with his camp, what he does for the sport, what he's done for people without even knowing it. So I celebrate him. Great dude. At Big League Chew. That's the social handles. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's your coach. Love you guys. Remember, keep going hard and do your thing.